All right. Welcome back, podcast listeners. Uh, This is episode 54 of the Mike Giant podcast. And uh, I am your host, of course, Mr. Mike Giant. (laughs) Um, Today, I wanted to kind of pick up where I left off in the last episode um, where I talked about 1997. So I'll start this uh, podcast with uh, memories of... 1998, uh, and I'm going to try to go mostly chronologically as much as I can remember. Um, I did take a lot of notes for this one. A lot happened in 98. It was a big, uh, big year for me, big year of transition, and um, it was tough uh, mentally. Uh, I lost a ton of weight in the uh, six months that I lived in London, uh, where I was living in January of 1998. Uh, Over those six months, I lost 30 pounds, mostly because I was broke and uh, couldn't afford to eat a lot. (laughs) Um, So I was just super thrifty um, and I was skateboarding a lot pretty much every single day that I lived in London. Uh, so that, that kept me healthy and motivated and was, uh, again, something that I could do basically for free uh, that I really, really enjoyed. Um, I was living uh, in Wandsworth, a neighborhood in kind of the south-central part of London, um, outside of the, the main old city. Uh, I was living with my buddy Tom and his mother, Honor. Uh, I had met them in, uh, I think, 1990, and then visited them again in 94 and extended an invitation for a longer stay. So I finally took advantage of that uh, in about, I think it was December of 97 that I finally moved out there. so, you know, by January of 98, um, I was still kind of getting adjusted in London. I hadn't been there long, just a few weeks, really. Um, I remember my uh, buddy Tom taking me to pubs and stuff to kind of mingle with the local folks and get the lowdown and uh, check out girls. We were both the same age and we're both single. <laughs> so... Uh, that uh, that that kept us uh, motivated for sure. Uh, I remember him taking me to uh, a neighborhood called Brixton, a bunch. It was kind of a hip, multicultural neighborhood. Uh, did have a rough side. You had to kind of watch your back in Brixton, um, but you know, wasn't wasn't super crazy. I mean, I I had already dealt with getting robbed and jumped and stuff and. Uh, San Francisco, so London didn't scare me too much, and I knew for the most part nobody had guns, but everybody had knives, uh, which is going to be just as bad, I suppose. <laughs> but I remember uh, there was a, a bar called Dog Star that we really liked um, that I think is still in business. Um, I remember we'd go there mostly to check out girls. It was uh, more of like 
I don't know, kind of an alternative punk kind of metal crowd. I'm not sure what kind of crowd it attracts these days, but, uh, you know, if we went by there, especially on the weekends, there was always, like, just big groups of really, really pretty girls. And, uh, you know, if you've got 10 pubs to choose from in a neighborhood and, you know, one's got the, the one place has all the pretty girls, that that's where we're going to go. <laughs> uh, there was another place, too, called the Prince Albert, which uh, I thought had a funny name. Uh, because I think the Prince Albert is a piercing, and it's the one where you put a ring through the hole of your penis, uh, and then like the ring hangs down off the bottom part of it, if I remember right. I don't know my uh, genital piercings all that well. <laughs> but uh, the Prince Albert was really cool, too. I feel like that was a place where we could run into uh, graffiti writers and hip-hoppers and stuff, and... I think that place is still open too and if from the looks of it they still are showing some vestiges of their uh hip-hop graffiti past uh another place i really liked uh closer to uh wandsworth where we lived was the sun uh, a pub in clapham um that was another place that would be crawling with cute girls and uh i remember i if i remember right i think it was there that I discovered this uh, Irish red cream ale. It was almost like a, a stout in, in kind of weight, but it was uh, kind of more of a red color and it was a bit lighter. And it had uh, the, the, the f that thick foamy top on it that a stout has. It, it had that, but it was a little different tasting than a Guinness. Guinness is kind of like a the standard there and I, I definitely drank a lot of Guinness it was often you know what was uh the cheapest thing on tap uh and it would fill me up and it was pretty strong and there was something uh it's a point of contention people th think that Guinness tastes better if you're in England or in Ireland uh versus the states and I wouldn't say better but I would say it is a little different from what I remember uh, cause I did drink a lot of beer back then. I don't really drink it at all anymore. I kind of miss it. Uh, but back then I was drinking many, many pints a day. I really, really enjoyed it. And living in London especially was nice for that. Uh, I remember too, at, I think it was at the sun, uh, Tom had been hanging out with some, some different people, maybe a new friend group. I forget if it was through acting or through rave culture, he was involved in both. Um, but he met this girl, Carrie, and he really dug her. Um, it wasn't really his style, um, but he told me that he met this girl and that uh, he thought I might like her. And uh, of course I was intrigued. It was hard to meet people. Um, you know, I had just gotten there, I hadn't really, broken into many friend groups at all. I was kind of relying on Tom to <laughs> help me kind of get integrated. Uh, but I did end up meeting Carrie. I think they had a, a house party or something and made sure that the two of us were going to be there. And uh, I was really impressed when I first met her. She was really, really cute. She was super short compared to me <laughs> at six foot four. I think she was like 
maybe five four, maybe closer to five two. Um, she had really pretty uh, brown hair. I think it was pretty short, like uh, very stylishly short, like a Vidal Sassoon cut, something like that, like a, a short bob or a I forget what those cuts are called, but uh, it was really cute. Uh, it wasn't boyish, even though it was short. Um, she wasn't really boyish at all. She was very cracking, I would say, these days. <laughs> she, uh, she looked amazing naked. And uh, she didn't wear particularly revealing clothing, but you could tell that underneath that was just something to see. Um, and I remember, too, as soon as we first met and she smiled, she had pretty fucked up teeth. They were crooked and twisted and stuff. And it was a, uh, I don't know, it was like a thing that people told me uh, to look out for when I was leaving America. I was like, yo, man, the British got crazy teeth, bro. You're going to see. And sure enough, I did. <laughs> uh, a lot of them had fucking jangled teeth. I, I don't really know what the fuck the deal is with that, you know. Uh, but it, it was a thing for sure. But I, I didn't mind it at all. In fact, it kind of gave her character, and I, I thought it was cool. Um, and uh, I remember, too, it might have been that first time we hung out. She, I don't know if she had already decided that she wanted to hook up with me or not, or I, I don't know. But she just decided to tell me the story of... Uh, a plumber that had come by her house just the week before and uh he was she was there just by herself um for some reason uh, the whole family was gone to work and school and stuff and uh he showed up and she was wearing very little clothing <laughs> and he happened to be a very young good-looking plumber and uh so she just kind of watched him work and it just like straight up out of a corny old porno movie. Uh, but she did fuck him. Uh, she fucked him for a while, I guess. And she had a really, really good time and admitted that she probably wouldn't see him again. Uh, but it was very exciting and, and she didn't regret it at all. And I thought that was pretty rad um, myself. I know that might turn off some guys to hear some shit like that. But I was like, oh, damn. All right, this girl's got some spirit, a little spunk. Like, she could be fun. We'll see. And I think uh, we made plans to meet up um, after that. I think we just, I think, if I remember correctly, we went to a pub for our first date at a place in Putney. It was a neighborhood kind of uh, not far from Wandsworth where I was living. And I think it was pretty close to where she was living too, kind of on the other side going uh, west. Uh, anyway, uh, we flirted. Uh, she looked really good. I remember, you know, like touching each other under the table and stuff and giggling and getting really turned on. Um, I think when we left there... Uh, I don't know. That's I. If my recollection is correct, we made out like crazy out in front of the the bar, and then I walked her to the train station, and we made out there a whole bunch until her train got there, and then I made sure she got on her train fine. She was only going one or two stops, and uh, 
I think I just walked all the way back to Wandsworth from there after that because I was so jazzed and I was a little drunk uh, and just was like excited uh, to be living there. It's, it's something, I don't know, uh, something that really lifts, lifts my spirits uh, when I meet a new person like that. Uh, I think pretty soon after that, we went out again. I think the second time we went to Soho, which is kind of like an old part of London in the central part. Uh, Soho and like Covent Garden, I think, are right next to each other, but it's kind of a hip area. There's a lot of clubs there and uh, theaters and uh, cool shops and all that kind of shit. Um, So we went down there and kind of were doing some club hopping. I remember, too, that she had... uh, a lot of latex on black latex and at the time i really had a thing for that it really turned me on and it really uh oh it stoked me out so much that she she liked to wear it uh without me having to ask her about it because <laughs> uh, uh man i don't know I don't, I don't have that uh fetish so much anymore but at the time uh I just thought it was so hot and I was like so stoked to be walking around with her. I thought she was so hot. It made me look good, kind of, you know. It gave me a lot of confidence. And uh, we had a really fucking good time that second date. I think we might have even gone to some basement bars in Soho. So, like, the back then, I don't know what it's like these days, but a lot of the pubs will close at like 10 or 11 at night, which is pretty fucking early. Um, you know, whereas in the States, the bars usually close at like two o'clock or let's say four o'clock if you're in New York City. So like 10, 11 is pretty early. Um, I guess some of the pubs would stay up until like midnight on the weekends if there was still a big crowd of people there, but often they, they closed early. So, you know, one of the options, if you knew where to go, were these after hours, literal underground bars in Soho. They wouldn't have a sign. There would just be a door, often with a big, scary guy right by the door. Um, and you just had to kind of know where to go. And you just straight walk up and be like, hi, can we go downstairs? And the doorman would look at you and make sure you were, looked okay. I don't think they even frisked us or anything. And if you were cool, they'd be like, yeah, go ahead. And if you weren't, they would just be like, I don't know what you're talking about. And you'd have to just, like, okay. And go try to find another one to go to. Um, But Carrie knew where some were. So we went and checked those out. And I remember that being a really cool thing. It was, like, an illegal part of London nightlife that everybody kind of knew about. I think the cops must have known about it, too, because it was just so prevalent. There were so many of them. Um, But, again, no signs, no nothing. I, I really dug it. And because they were operating illegally to begin with, and often in like these basements where there was kind of one way in, one way out, so if the cops did come, it was pretty easy to get rid of any you know stuff that might be problematic when the cops get there. So there was a lot of open drug use. I remember a lot of people just doing lines of who knows what on little mirrors and things right on the bar. Um, people just sitting at tables doing drugs of all sorts, people smoking, all sorts of things. It was just kind of a, a wild uh, free zone, at least the ones that we were going to. 
Um, I'm sure she knew some good ones, so we weren't going to some bullshit, but it was, I don't know, it was really, really fun. And because she was usually in black latex, like, she, I, I think she knew where that kind of stuff was, and she knew how much I liked it, so sometimes we would end up at bars where almost everybody was wearing that stuff, and I felt out of place because I didn't really have the gear to participate, but, oh man, that shit was fucking pretty fucking dope pretty hot we, we didn't do any like sex clubs or anything like that back then but uh we, we definitely did some fetish uh stuff here and there and uh like i said i just was really i dug that shit um i think that that second night too we ended up having to take the night bus back to clapham junction where i lived um because the subway trains stopped running after like midnight Kind of like in the Bay Area where the BART trains stop running at like 1 or 2. And if you're out past that, you have very limited options about how to get like back to Oakland from the city or whatever. So it's kind of the same in London. If you were out past, say, 2 o'clock, um, you had to take the night buses. And they ran kind of like just every hour. Um, but they all kind of left from... <sighs> I think it was Leicester Square. Um, it, was, it was like the, the central hub where all the buses were. And these were all the the double-decker red buses like you've seen in movies and pictures and stuff of London. Um, and so we took that night bus, and I remember there was this whole scene again on the night bus because it was like the people who were the real, real late-night people in London, and there weren't a lot of them. Most people went home and chilled. Um, so the, the late-night scene was uh, was really fun. And I remember we went up to the second floor of the bus and sat down, and a group of uh, young, like, hip-hop dudes, uh, I'd say, <laughs> like, hopped on. And they went right to the front of the bus on the second floor and they put their uh, jackets down immediately. Like two, two of the young dudes sat down right in the front right seat. And uh, was it the front right? Yeah, I guess it was the front right seat. And uh, there was like a, a little window that went down to the driver and he had a mirror set up so that he could look at a mirror where he was sitting and it went up to the mirror on the second floor and then he could see everything that was happening on the top of the bus. But these kids knew that. And so they sat down right in those front two seats and immediately put their big puffy jackets because it was fucking cold. It was January. Um, over the that window so the driver couldn't see. And it was a pain in the ass for him to pull over just to go upstairs and be like, hey, sir, you need to move your jacket so I can see what's going on up here. They would just be like, fuck it. It's night bus. Like, whatever happens up there happens. So as soon as those kids covered up the window, some of their other homies started smoking weed, busting out, like, booze and shit. I think a few of them were, like, walking around to us and asking if we needed anything, like weed or pills or coke and shit, shit like that. Because, again, it was like game on upstairs there because the, the driver couldn't see what was happening. So it turned into this whole fucking party. And the night bus, it takes fucking forever because it makes kind of every local stop. But it, it, its route is like three or four times as long as usual. So it would take us like, God, it might have taken us an hour 
and a half to get back to Clapham, whereas normally on the train it might have taken 30 minutes. So it was quite an adventure, <laughs> uh, but it was really fun. And I remember we got off at Clapham Junction, and it might have been raining a little bit. I remember it being really cold, and we uh, uh, were still pretty buzzed from drinking and stuff. And we made the walk all the way back to the, the house I was living at and tried to be super fucking quiet because by then it was like, fuck, like four in the morning. And uh, I hadn't really thought about... Uh, the implications of bringing a girl home. I was living with Tom and his mother and they were letting me live there rent free because they owned the building and they liked having me around and Tom was stoked to have me there. We were fucking besties and his mom was stoked to see Tom stoked, you know? So, um, but I was trying to be really respectful and whatnot and I hadn't talked to Tom or Honor about bringing a girl home because it just kind of hadn't come up yet. I wasn't so sure that second date that I was even going to bring her home. But she wanted to come home with me. So we, we got back and I tried to be really quiet. Um, I, you know, I, I thought at the time I was being sneaky and wasn't, you know, uh, that nobody knew. But it was an old house. It was super quiet. I'll bet everybody heard us uh, upstairs because... We did end up fucking um, that night. Uh, I'm sure I used a condom. I always, I always did back then, and it just was one of those things. Um, I didn't even think about it, but I know I had some. I, I know I had been hoping <laughs> that Carrie and I would hook up, uh, but I remember it was really, really good. I had not a lot of sexual. Uh, experience at that point I guess let's see 98 yeah see I was even 98 I was in my mid 20s late 20s and still I didn't feel like I had that much uh, experience so uh, I remember just really enjoying the time I had with Carrie um, because she was just so kind of tiny and she was like I don't know. It was like a marble statue. I might see at one of those museums in London. She had her her skin was just like milky white. It was crazy, and her breasts were nuts too because they just the it's like the look that a fake breast would have now, where it, it didn't sag at all. It was just like a perfect half dome, two of them, um, and her nipples kind of pointed up a little bit. Even it was crazy. Um, yeah, she, she was absolutely phenomenal. And I remember she always smelled super nice. I love the smell of her hair. She was a really good kisser. I remember she, uh, <laughs> she, you know, she was just, she had such small hands. She, she made me feel like a, a monster when I would see her doing certain things. And, uh, yeah, she, she was awesome. And I, I remember we woke up late that next morning she would have, I think it was a Sunday morning. And again, trying to really be super quiet. And uh, I crept off and took a shower. And she asked if she could take one. And she crept off and took a shower. And looking back, I mean, everybody in the house must have known there was somebody extra in the house just because there was extra footsteps and extra showers happening. And, 
you know, and I'm sure it really, I know, I know it really bummed out Tom's mom that I brought a girl home without asking her first. Um, and, uh, he, yeah, it was just one of those things. We, we tried to be super quiet about it. And I think I kept adding insult to injury cause I, I fucked her again that morning. And I remember that was amazing too. Cause she had come out of the shower and she had c- covered her entire body with lotion and she was just so like soft and kind of slick and shining again, like a statue. And the morning light, I remember, was coming through the window, and it was, it was just like a, a bright, hard light, like that winter, that winter light that we were kind of experiencing now. Um, yeah, she just, she just was amazing. I, yeah, to this day, I'm glad I have a memory of of her and the sunlight there, and the, it was, it was also, it was like the third floor. It was basically the attic bedroom of uh of this old house uh yeah uh, it was a a crazy place i i think that's the i think that's the only time i had sex with her in the house because then uh i tried to be courteous and sneak her out i thought i'd snuck her out with anybody seeing and i gave her a kiss and she knew how to get back to the train station so she jammed and I just went back to, I think I just went back up to my room and chilled, maybe slept a little bit longer. And then uh, when I went back downstairs later that day, Tom stopped me and was like, hey, man, did you have Carrie over here last night? And I was like, yeah, dude, it was dope. And he was like, fuck, that's fine. But you really needed to ask my mom before you start inviting girls over. I mean, you're kind of, you're not paying rent. We're not asking much from you. We're just a little respect you know and she's older and she doesn't really understand and you know what I mean and I was like fuck my bad dude I don't I didn't mean to put anybody in a bind you know that's the last thing I'm trying to do so I went down and I found honor and I apologized to her straight up and didn't lie to her at all about what happened and uh, she was like, you know, it's, it's okay. I just, you know, you need to give me a little bit of a heads up, you know, cause <laughs> you know, it, she just, uh, yeah, she just wanted a little bit of a heads up. Uh, so at least she knew what she was kind of getting into. And like I say, uh, Carrie and I did try to be as quiet as absolutely possible. Um, you know, but I, I, I don't know, whatever. So after that, um, Carrie and I continued to hang out. I would see her pretty, I'd see her maybe once a week, I suppose, on the weekends. I think she had a day job, and I, I'll bet you she had um, other dudes that she was seeing. I, I wasn't really tripping on that. We never uh, expressed, like, love or monogamy towards each other. Uh, we were just having fun and kind of playing it by ear at the time. Um, but it was really cool to have a, a lady to hang out with kind of early in the trip. Um, also, uh, I had made a, a really nice monogamous female friend with uh, this girl, Nicole. I think that was her name. Uh, she was a friend of my ex-girlfriend's um, before I left uh, San Francisco. And... The, they knew each other and they were cool and I think they knew that like 
I don't know. I I got the feeling that Nicole was like hands off as far as like sexual stuff or anything because she was my ex's friend and I wasn't trying to complicate things or make my ex think that I was being vengeful or anything like that, you know? So I was just really hands off with Nicole and she was very cute. I don't know if I, I don't know if I was really attracted to her physically or not. I, I kind of can't remember in particular, but I know she was cute and cool and she had really rad friends and she, um, hadn't lived in London long either, but had been there long enough, um, to kind of know what was, what was popping. I think she worked for Wired Magazine, which was like a, a techie magazine back then, um, all about the world of the internet and all that kind of stuff. And at the time, I mean, it was 98, so it was kind of a, a new niche culture, these like techno people, you know, that were working completely on computers and kind of working in the computer world kind of entirely. And uh, but it was still a, a print magazine that you could pick up in bookstores and whatnot. Um, I I would look at it every once in a while just because it had cool graphic design. Um, and I was really interested in that kind of stuff at the time. And I remember um, that was the thing that uh, Nicole and I could vibe on was design. Uh, we were both really big fans of the Designers Republic who was doing a lot of rave designs and, and LP covers and stuff like that. And another agency called T uh, Tomato, which they say uh, Tomato uh, with a British accent. Um, and this other one called Attic, A-T-T-I-K, that we both really dug that was like kind of deconstructivist rave kind of stuff, kind of like Designers Republic, with a little, little different. I think everybody kind of ripped off the Designers Republic at some point during the, the rave years. Um, and it was cool to be in London and England in general, you know, where a lot of that uh, really forward uh, computer-generated graphics were, were coming from. Uh, we would often uh, meet up at her office just before they'd, they'd uh, get off for the day because they would often go have drinks in uh, pubs and stuff in the neighborhood there after work. It was almost like a... It was a really regular religious thing uh, for them. And I think for a lot of people in, in, in Britain, uh, and I suppose all over Europe, but happy hour is like a real thing. They'll really go and uh, hang out with their coworkers and have a bunch of drinks after work and kind of do it every day. And uh, they were fun people. You know, I was coming from more of like a, a street art graffiti, skateboard, hip-hop, uh, you know, drum and bass kind of angle kind of guy. And they were very, like, um, you know, well-dressed, getting paid really well, working in fancy chairs at nice desks at these fancy offices all day. But we vibed, uh, you know. I think a big thing people vibed on in London at the time was the music scene because it was just, it was super, super popping. Um, also something that was cool about that group of friends were the house parties that they would throw. I mentioned earlier that the, the pubs usually close pretty early. So there's not a lot of options say after midnight or one o'clock, uh, for things to do. So often people will just, um, invite people over to their home and everybody will pick up, uh, booze and whatnot on the way over there. So house parties were a, a really regular occurrence, uh, for me living in London. Um, back then. Uh, 
and they were always really really fun it was a great way to meet new people you knew everybody was kind of handpicked if they were in someone's home and you know in fact you were even handpicked to be included um you know to be there and it was uh there was and again there was a lot of really attractive um women that were really killing it financially and in their careers and stuff and looked really dope and had crazy style and i don't know that shit was really fresh i was feeling it because again i was just kind of San Francisco graffiti dude that had just gotten transplanted into London and was just kind of trying to figure out how things worked, <laughs> you know. And I, I did like to smoke weed back then. I rarely ever bought it. If you know, rarely, rarely ever bought it. But if somebody had it around, I would smoke it and I enjoyed it. And uh, my buddy Tom knew some skater kids uh, that sold weed. And uh, we would go by their place, which was in, like, this gigantic concrete, like, housing development. They're all over London. I think they the people kind of own, own them, like a condo. Um, but they're basically just apartments. Uh, and from the outside, they just look like fucking doom. <laughs> uh, just, just big, blocky, concrete monstrosities. Um, but inside often, uh, people would really hook them up nice, even though they were just these really ugly, uh, plain buildings with, uh, very, very plain features, but inside people would really make them, uh, special and, and soften them up a bit. And, uh, I don't know, these, these guys had a, a fucking cool little pad. I think it was like two or three dudes that lived together and maybe one or two of them sold weed. Um, but they were all from London. They were all born and raised. Uh, they all skated. They all listened to hip-hop a lot. And th th something funny about that group of friends was they spoke with an American accent, uh, which was pretty rare uh, from my experience. Basically, they listened to enough uh, hip American hip-hop and uh, American uh, television and movies that they just kind of picked it up and because they listened to rap kind of constantly and were in that kind of world they had american accents it was the weirdest fucking thing and they rolled with them wherever they were and it wasn't like i don't remember it being weird i don't remember people looking at them weird but they just had a d definitely more of an american accent uh and I just thought it was so funny when I would get high with them and just I'd be so high and be like, where am I? Am I in fucking Chicago right now? And they'd be like, oh, fuck, no, I'm in London. But everybody around me is talking like an American. Like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> but those dudes were super cool. I remember they would trip out because I would roll joints for myself with just pure weed. And they always rolled them with uh, cigarette tobacco. They call them spliffs when you roll it like that. And everybody in Europe pretty much just smokes spliffs. Uh, I don't know. It's just it's how they do it. And so when they see Americans roll up like a whole joint full of just pure weed, they're like, holy fuck, dude, you're going to be so high. And I guess as Americans, we're just used to being like a lot higher than Europeans are, <laughs> I guess. Because I would smoke those whole joints to the dome and just be super high and having a good time. If I remember right, it was mostly White Widow that they had. Uh, I think that was a really 
common uh, strain of like good weed um, that you could get in Europe for a long, long time. Uh, but those dudes were fucking hilarious. Mm. So around that time, uh, I mean, this is still January of 98. I think I was in a bookstore <coughs> or somewhere. And I don't know if I saw this book or saw an article about the book. Because it says it came out in 99, which would be the next year. But I don't know what the fuck. But I, I saw something about this this book called Bored. B-O-R-E-D. Uh, and it was snow skate and surf graphics. Um, and I had just left Think after doing four years of graphics there. And I, whenever I would see anything about skateboard graphics or anything and i was i would always flip through it hoping to see some of my work in there and to be honest i'm not sure if there was in board i think there was i'm pretty sure i can't remember this is so long ago but uh i noticed that the the author of that book lived in london and i don't know how i got in touch with this dude but I think his name was Patrick Burgoyne. I think he's still even a writer in the kind of creative world. Um, I'm not sure where he lives these days. But but in any case, um, he was cool as fuck and knew who I was and was, I think, surprised to hear that I was living in London. And he agreed to meet up with me. And I can't remember where we met, if it was at an agency or some shit, um, or it might have just been at some pub. I can't remember, but I remember him being really cool and very helpful, and he asked, you know, what my plans were in London, and I told him that I was mostly hoping to uh, get hired to do graphics and illustrations and stuff for record labels, because I was really into uh, electronic music at the time, uh, mostly like down-tempo stuff and drum and bass, jungle kind of things. Um, and a lot of the artwork that I was seeing, uh, on stuff from those labels, you know, were, were touching a nerve and I thought maybe I could contribute and be a part of that little scene. You know, I'd kind of left the skateboard graphics scene, um, and knew everybody kind of in that world. So now I was kind of trying to step into this world of like, LP design and uh, all that kind of stuff, uh, but really knew nothing about it, knew nobody, didn't even have a computer, didn't know if I needed one, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but Patrick was able to get me some uh, appointments with some different agencies uh, that he knew, like people personally that might be interested in seeing what I had to offer and might be able to help me, you know, get some gigs or at least another referral to more people and just kind of keep trying it, doing it that way. Again, this was way pre-internet, so kind of the, the only way to, to get this done was to physically go and, and meet these people in person. He also got me a meeting with uh, the T Tomato Agency, um, I don't know if they're still around, but they were another one that was doing a lot of these like really cool campaigns and had a lot of different styles. And I think they had a few like hand uh, illustrators there. And I forget who I met with there. 
and I kind of showed them a bunch of graffiti photos and some photos of like t-shirt graphics and stuff that I'd done and they were like oh this is all really cool man this is stuff that like we personally really like and we wear and are really really into this and we think you're fucking cool but we don't really have any idea how to fit you into what we do and I was like that totally fucking cool super nice to meet you guys i'm a huge fan even though we're in very different worlds and i'm just humbled that you took some time to even look at what i had you know and and those people were super fucking nice um i think also i was able to get a meeting um at ninja tune records through patrick that might have been through one of the other people but um, Ninja Tune is a label that I always really loved. Uh, again, they put out a lot of really cool, like hip hop down tempo, like British hip hop. Uh, it's fucking so so good. I always fucking loved it, and to this day, uh, always see uh, what they've got uh, to offer. Um, at the time, I when I went over there to meet, I think I spoke with DJ Food, who's one of the founders, if not the founder. Um, and he was really cool. I remember he was psyched to meet me too, to, to learn about graffiti writing and to see my graffiti photos. And I think he might've heard about me through that scene. Um, and I expressed, you know, an interest in doing, uh, artwork for his label. And, uh, some of the best advice I've ever gotten in my whole life was from that conversation with DJ food. Cause he explained to me that I should just start a record label of my own and went on to explain that he and, and other people in that scene start labels because they're artists and graphic designers that aren't really getting a lot of like creative work or work that's personally satisfying. But they know lots and lots of musicians that are making really cool stuff and they're, they're totally part of that whole scene of like the the underground in in london and a lot of those artists those uh, musicians of course wanted to have their work released and shared with the world and it was this whole sound that uh was really to me percolating in particular in london it was very different than the rest of the world and i i felt really uh i felt like it was really special and i was really thankful that i was there for that and so he was like, you know, if you know people that are making music that's fresh, like you should release that shit because then you'll have an opportunity to design all the packaging, you know, all the the extras, the T-shirts, the logos, the stickers, maybe videos even, you know, the whole nine. And then you have like you basically you're, you're your own client, you know, and uh, I've always thought that that was such great advice and i i'm not someone to like start a business um i've i don't know i i know i also know like and he explained like what goes into you know running a record label and you know dealing with distributors and it's a lot of business too it's not just uh creative stuff it's almost like 50 50 um so if you can have somebody that can take care of the business stuff while you take care of the creative stuff that's kind of the best best of both worlds really um and yeah it's just one of those things you know to this day I, I do know a lot of musicians that are making stuff that i think would blow minds around the world that they don't really have the that 
push just yet to to do that and i don't know if i have the the skills to make that happen but it would be uh a fun thing to be able to have uh all those uh graphic design projects you know to to work on if i uh, did have a record label um but i i I was really thankful for that. I remember the, the, the Ninja Tune office was really cool. I think somebody was in a, uh, a room, like a kind of a soundproofed room in the office, and they were recording or, or listening to some new tracks or something. But I remember the whole time that we were talking, and the whole, that room was just buzzing with bass. And uh, I thought that was fucking, that was super tough. Um, I think, too, it... Around that time, uh, my buddy Tom, through skateboarding and stuff, knew a kid named Will Bankhead. And I forget, I, I think it had been a bit of time uh, where they hadn't seen each other and stuff. But we went somewhere and we hooked up with Ben, and, uh, or, or Will, I should say. And uh, he was really cool. Uh, I think we went back to his pad and listened to some new uh, music um, and smoked a bunch of weed. And I learned that Will worked for Moax Records, which was another one kind of like Ninja Tune that put out really dope, like progressive hip hoppy beat kind of music, like down tempo. Uh, but again, very much their own British sound. Um, and I really fucking loved their label and was like, oh, fuck, this, this might be cool. You know, this, this dude works at Moax. But he, he also kind of explained to me that they didn't have a lot of releases. So they, they didn't really ever hire out uh, freelance because it was just uh, a few people, you know. And they'd already uh, had gotten uh, a deal with Futura, Futura 2000 from New York. Uh, to do a, a graphics and paintings and stuff that they could abstract to use as LP covers and whatnot. Um, so they already had kind of an aesthetic on. Um, but they were cool. And I think Will had set up a meeting at the label. I know he did. We had set it down. We had a time that I needed to be there on a certain day. And I was like, cool. That day, I learned that it was going to be difficult to get to where they were using public transportation. So it was, it was going to be quite a mission. And London is really, really complicated and it's hard to get around. I had this little map book called an A to Z. And it had every fucking street in uh, London in it. And uh, it was an indispensable guide at the time, pre-internet. Um, when you're really having to navigate with physical maps, man, that A to Z was the shit. But I remember it being a really shitty, cold, rainy day. I don't even think I could skate that day because it was raining so hard. And it just took me extra long to get back out to the Moax office. And I got there and I was totally on time. Everything was cool and nobody answered the door. And I sat there for like 15 minutes and kind of kept knocking. I think I stayed there for half an hour and just nobody came. And I was so bummed and angry and let down and just was like, you know, kind of slowly realizing that my dream of doing this stuff for record labels was just not going to happen. And nobody was had really any vested interest in helping me do it. 
and was becoming clearer and clearer that the uh, advice I got from DJ Food was really, really good, you know? And maybe I shouldn't be in London if I was going to try to actually do some shit like that because it was already kind of covered there. Uh, but in any case, I, I was like, fuck it, you know, and just was like, fuck my wax. I guess, you know, it's just not going to happen and d- didn't really trip. And, uh, yeah, that was that. <laughs> that was kind of a bummer. Uh, but that same time, uh, I had met up with, I think he wrote deck. He might've wrote something else. I think it was D E K. Ah, my memory's not super, but uh, I met him through Art Crimes, which was graffiti.org on the internet, which was the first official international graffiti website, period. The first. Um, it was a big fucking deal. Uh, I don't even know if it still exists. I'll, I'll bet you you can still look at it, and I'll bet you it's still like programmed like it's fucking 1998. <laughs> but... Uh, <clears throat> it was a, a hell of a hub for us and a, a source of information, especially for international stuff. And uh, so I was hanging out with Deck, and we were going to do uh, paintings at different spots around London, these little uh, walls and, like, parks and stuff mostly. It, we painted in the rain a bunch because it was kind of like the shittiest time of year really to move to to europe (laughs) in the middle of fucking winter i wasn't really thinking about that one but uh we did we we were able to paint a bunch and i think uh pretty early on too they introduced me to this guy that wrote sensa s-e-n-s-a i think that's what it was and i if i remember correctly he was from like australia or new zealand ah i wish i could remember I think it was Australia. I'm almost positive because I think he was in Australian graffiti magazines that I had seen and he had like trains and stuff. But uh, he was cool as fuck. I liked that dude's sense a lot. And uh, we, we ended up doing a lot of pieces together. I, I don't know if I have photos of much of that shit, but I'm, that dude was cool. And I think through, uh, through Deck as well, I ended up meeting these uh, Irish writers Again, I, I wish I could remember what they wrote, but they they were straight up from Ireland, and uh, they were my first uh, experience kind of with, like, real uh, guys from Ireland, real Irish guys, and they were fucking wild. They were, like, they had so much energy and were loud and kind of obnoxious but really fun and would, like, poke fun at you all the time and drank, like, fucking crazy, and... Uh, they, those guys too, uh, there were times when we would be out late and they'd be like, hey, let's go to fucking Soho and, and hit the underground bars. And I'd be like, okay. And those dudes would be doing fucking crazy lines of coke and, and just fucking going crazy in those underground bars, starting fights. I saw one of them break a pool stick over a guy and it was just this whole fucking thing. I thought we were going to get arrested and beat up and none of that actually happened, but fuck those guys were trouble but they were so fun uh i really enjoyed them i i god damn it i wish i could remember their names but uh god god bless those irish homies <laughs> uh in uh february of that year uh tom told me about this uh 
rave kind of thing that was going to happen at the Brixton Academy, which is not far from us on Valentine's Day. And so uh, we got tickets to that. I think also we might have had the hookup on the tickets too because Tom, I believe, had befriended this dude named Daniel Pemberton. And uh, he was this young dude, just a teenager. He might have only been like 15, 14 or 15. And he was a DJ and played good shit. And it was just, just kind of this crazy thing to see this like, like really young dude really good on the turntables and really well thought out segues and mixes and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and, and he was playing, uh, in this weird little balcony space at this gigantic rave at, again, at the, at the Brixton Academy, I, I think is what it was called. Uh, and I don't know if it was Daniel or Tom, I think it was Tom knew, uh, somebody there that had a really good LSD. Uh, Tom was kind of, he, he hung out with people that ended up being like the founders of Burning Man. Uh, there was this whole like techno culture. Um, it's hard to describe. Um, but there was a club called Megatripolis that Tom was part of. And it was like this thing where they had like lectures by people who were at the forefront of psychedelic use and science, as well as like techno stuff, like computers and internet and all that kind of stuff. At the time, again, it was still very futuristic and, and different uh, and, and very niche and underground. Uh, but Tom was hip to that. And, and part of that scene was psychedelics and they always had really fucking good drugs. So we got some really fucking awesome acid from them that night and we all took it and uh, it was it was awesome. And it was also like a special show. Um, it was a Valentine's Day theme. So it was kind of like love and, and peace and stuff like like a lot of raves were. But they were featuring music that wasn't so typical. Um, I got to see the sounds of the Asian underground at that show. A guy named Talvin Singh um, had a group, and it was basically like a drum and bass that was influenced by uh, India, music from India, uh, tablas, uh, sitars, stuff like that. And it was fucking sick. It was such a cool sound, and it was kind of the sound of London uh, that's that year. Uh, this whole like India uh, drum and bass fusion. I remember hearing it bumping out of all the corner stores and stuff. You know, it got a, a lot of radio play. Um, and also at that show, I got to see Square Pusher. And I knew about him uh, a little bit previously just from exploring new music. And he made this very aggressive, erratic, expressive uh, drum and bass kind of jungle music. And he did it by playing an actual uh, bass guitar. And he had uh, uh, an array of different drum machines and th uh, synthesizer stuff in front of him. And so each song he did was a live performance. And it was like on the spot. And uh, it was, it, again, it was like a Valentine's Day rave. So it was like sweet love and stuff. And he came out on the stage <laughs> and he just yelled, Acid House! And we were all like, what the fuck? And he just jumped into 
a really really hard acid track um if you know acid house music it, just very aggressive <laughs> he didn't give a fuck and he kind of just assaulted <laughs> everybody's ears for like 30 40 minutes um i loved it but you could tell the crowd was like what the fuck is up with this guy you know is he on drugs is this just how he is is he crazy but it was intense and i i loved it um it's you should check it out if you're into electronic music square pusher especially the stuff from back then it was just it it's uh yeah it was just so full of energy and uh uh yeah i i just fucking loved it and not like i say not everybody did <laughs> and at some point uh that evening uh, I noticed that they were there was a guy with a camera and the camera was connected to the uh, backdrop behind the stage uh, behind the the DJ and all the artists and stuff and they were kind of going through the crowd and they were looking for pretty girls that were like dancing with their eyes closed and stuff or or uh, shots of people making out because uh, it was like Valentine's Day and shit like that and at some point uh, I was in full fucking rave mode. I took my shirt off, which was very rare. I must have been sweating my ass off and or really, really high on LSD. And uh, I was just dancing. <coughs> and at the time, I had... The only tattoo I had on my chest was this, like... It looked like my chest had been ripped open and you could see my heart... Uh, underneath the uh, the bones and stuff like the bones were broken away and you could see my heart um, and you could see where the skin was like pink and uh, fatty where it had folded over and it was also shadowed onto my skin so it looked like it was dimensional it's still there it's kind of surrounded by a bunch of other stuff and I ended up having Jeff Rasher redo it uh, years and years later uh, but it's still there and you can kind of tell what's going on there but when i first had it it was like wow that's a crazy thing and it was very san francisco style and people would really trip out on it and uh i remember at one point somebody next to me that i was dancing next to and i had my eyes closed and i was just dancing and they poked me and i looked over and they pointed at the screen and i looked up at the screen and there was my chest and the guy was like standing right in front of me on the stage. I was really up close to the stage. And again, like I had my eyes closed and I was just dancing. I th you know, I don't know what the fuck we were listening to at the time. Uh, but I was going and I was like high as fuck. And I was like, what the fuck am I looking at? How is my chest up there? Because I didn't see the cameraman at first and I was tripping. And man, that fucked me up. I was like, where am I? What the fuck is happening? Holy shit. And then I saw the camera dude and made the connection and was like, oh, okay. And then I was super embarrassed because the whole fucking place was basically watching me fucking flared out of my mind <laughs> in a rave with my shirt off, super white, skinny, just not attractive. But uh, people were tripping on that tattoo and I immediately like, you know, got out of the way of the cameraman and put my shirt on and was all embarrassed but that was uh that was a fucking trippy experience for sure i think it was uh probably the next month in like march or so of uh of that year of 98 that i was at uh 
a place called Rough Trade Records. And uh, it was just a spot that I would go. They, they, they would have these, uh, I think DJs would play like the new shit and people would bring in like dub plates and new singles and things for them to play, like all different kinds of electronic music. Um, but I would go and just kind of hang out and kind of flip through records, really not knowing what I was looking at most of it didn't have graphics on the records you know the names weren't very helpful um and i didn't even have a record player so i was kind of fronting but <laughs> i would kind of look through the records while they were playing uh the new shit in the store and there was other people there and they weren't really they wanted people to buy records they didn't want a bunch of fucking kids like us just fucking hanging out listening you know so you'd you'd start to feel their eyes uncomfortable on you and eventually you'd, you'd leave you know um but i would always make the rounds and and stop in at rough trade and um i was just corresponding with my buddy eggs who i met right then and uh he told me that what happened was i ran into uh this kid russell maurice that wrote gas or gas face uh and his homie pinky when I was at Rough Trade one uh, afternoon, I'll bet you it was a weekend, uh, like a Saturday, and they just recognized me or knew who I was and knew that I was in London somehow. I had definitely been getting up by that point and was, was you know, it was, people were starting to know, and uh, they were they were stoked, and I was really stoked to meet them. They did really cool shit, uh, like graffiti stuff, and it was kind of like... Um, it was kind of like silly fun graffiti, which I really liked because the stuff I was kind of into more was just like really aggressive, like wild styles and very like rooted in the tradition of graffiti. And these guys just had kind of a playful way of dealing with it that I, I really, really enjoyed. <coughs> so they were actually headed to meet this dude, Eggs. Um, and they, they took me along and, uh, Eggs uh, was from Finland and was like a, a super known writer all through Northern Europe at the time. He'd done trains and stuff and uh, has a really fucking unique style and to this day does pieces regularly. Super fucking sick dude. E-G-S, Eggs. And uh, at the time he was at the Camberwell College of Arts. I think he was in the dorms or something. And we went to uh, visit him and, and uh, I think he had known who i was from like graffiti magazines and stuff at the time and so it was just you know good vibes and we were both into kind of the the new electronic music that was um popping on the streets in london at the time so i remember it was just kind of kicking back and vibing on that and drinking beers and he showed me his like sketchbooks and stuff and some of the stuff that he did at his school which was like super super smart and forward-thinking intellectual like really 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 neat shit i think he did a if i remember right he made a font out of little bits of a photograph that he had like turned to black and white of the unabomber i can't remember if that's right but it was really abstract shit like that like real conceptual um but still like design, you know, like creating font sets and stuff like that. Uh, and so we, uh, we became friends and would hang out and 
would paint here and there, you know, but uh, a lot of times I feel like we just would kick it maybe at his school, stuff like that. I also hung out with uh, Russ a bunch to Gas Face um, and would kind of do the same thing. I'd go out to his place, which I think was pretty far from central London. And uh, I think he was going to school too, maybe a different school. And uh, he was making uh, like four track uh, down tempo breakbeat kind of shit that was like funky with weird uh, samples from like if, cartoons and things if I remember right stuff like that I I could be tripping but I remember really digging doing that too I, I don't know if it was I think after that um, maybe after he got out of school he was working for a brand called Maharishi which is a, a fucking super super sick brand from uh, from England and uh, he was doing a lot of like uh, camouflage designs really amazing shit like camos in different colors with wild shapes and now kind of people are hip to all that but back then uh i feel like they were doing some really forward shit and uh russ also made these cool little zines they were tiny like as big as your palm and they were like little uh just little zines like full of drawings and cartoons and sketches and uh graffiti stuff and uh i just remember they were super dope and i i I was all about them and wanted to have all of them (laughs) anything that he made at the time, too, like, it was really, I, I couldn't get a job because I was just there as a visitor. And uh, so making money was really tricky. Uh, luckily, I had stayed in touch with uh, different people in the States, and, and jobs would come up once in a while. And the guys from 12 Ounce Profit Magazine hit me up and were like, we want to release a series of posters, um, and we want you to do one for us. And you can do kind of any size whatever the fuck you want to do so at the time i had been doing uh, a lot of black book uh drawings and stuff uh and i was doing a lot of collages too with like photos from magazines and things and then i would cut out a graffiti piece that i'd drawn on a white piece of paper and uh paste it into the book uh, on the the like, collage of magazine pictures and stuff and i was doing that a lot and often I was including characters and stuff like that in the drawings. And so when I got hit up to do this poster, I was like, fuck, I, I, th- I feel like I should just rework the stuff I'm doing now because it's like the, the, the very new shit, you know? And so I went through and I made Xerox copies of the stuff in my black books and then went through and cut out just the graffiti stuff um from those layouts and then i just started kind of stacking those things on top of each other and it just ended up saying giant a bunch of times over and over and over down the poster um with a bunch of characters mixed in and it was just kind of it was really just cut and paste like super old school and i think i even sent them uh the original as a flat in a big piece of cardboard Um, And it was, like I say, it was just like a cut and pasted thing. And uh, they were able to, like, scan and do whatever and and print that. And it's this funny poster that's, like, maybe maybe only a foot wide, like 10, 12 inches wide. But it's maybe, like, two and a half, three feet long. It's, like, a real long and tall. Uh, And it's one of the most, uh, what would I say, collectors want that one really bad. 
it was a super rare thing to find that 12 ounce profit poster um but i i noticed that it gets pretty good money uh if people put one up for sale the collectors are really savvy for those um because they're so rare um but that was i was in good company with that uh that poster series i think joker did one i forget who else but that was super dope and it was some much needed money i don't know how i didn't even know how i got money back then if i had my parents able to put money into my account while i was in europe or some shit i forget how i was doing that but that really that money for that poster really helped me out and it really wasn't much but i at the time i i, I barely had anything so anything really really helped um let's see and i met eggs I'm, I'm looking at some notes i have in here oh yeah i think it was around that time too that uh Tom mentioned to me that this dude, Fotek, P-H-O-T-E-K, he's a, a drum and bass producer, uh, and he did a lot of stuff with, like, samples from kung fu movies and things like that, and uh, he was doing a night uh, at this little sp spot where everybody just had seats, and you'd sat down, and we watched uh, kung fu movies while Fotek played music. And if I remember correctly, they had like a sampler that had different sounds of like swords hitting each other or punches being landed or like the, the sound of their, uh, their outfits, you know, flapping as they would make moves and stuff like in Kung Fu movies. Because uh, it was all kind of timed. If I remember right, it seemed like it was timed uh the action was timed with the, the sounds that they were making and Fotech was kind of playing along with it. Uh, it could have just been as simple as him playing new stuff and they were playing a Kung Fu movie and none of it was actually meant to be timed, but it, you know how that goes. It sometimes it lines up and it seems meant to be, I don't know, but I remember that shit being really fresh cause I really fucking loved Fotech stuff. I would hear it at the clubs a lot. It was kind of dark and techy and, I just, uh, I don't know, I, I really liked it. So to, to have a night where he was able to just focus and do, uh, uh, I think it was like a longer set. And I, I don't know if even other people played that night. And it was probably only like, geez, it seemed like there was only like 30 people there. It was a funny little spot, but th that was really dope. That, that, I, for some reason, I remember that. And uh, that was super tight. Let's see. So... I guess soon after that, too, um, Tom took me to see this guy called Wagon Christ, uh, Luke Vibert, V-I-B-E-R-T. And Wagon Christ is two words if you want to search, uh, you know, whatever, Spotify or whatever for that. But his shit's really fucking fresh, and I think he's continued to make music to this day, too. And I have a whole shitload of albums by him. Uh but that shit was really fresh too. Again, more of that like uh, hip hop kind of tempo, abstract, weird, fun. Uh, you know, great for like being super stoned at a pub in London, <laughs> listening to some dude fucking get loose. Uh, but I really dig uh, Wagon Christ. That was fun. I think also around that time, I got hip to the Metalheads uh, drum and bass night at a place called the Blue Note. 
which was a, a little pub on a corner um, in Hoxton. I think it was right on Hoxton Square. Uh, kind of a random ass fucking place. And I think it was on a Sunday night. It was on. It was a weekly. It was, and I think it was on Sundays. And uh, so you know, it wasn't like a club per se where people were going there to like go clubbing and go meet people and drink a lot and you know mingle and stuff you know like the sunday night crowd was you know you had to really want to be there um you know you probably didn't have to go to work on monday morning you know so it was a much more niche crowd it was kind of like uh like the night for the people that made drum and bass music it was their night and you'd go there and you'd really listen to the music and you'd dance and drink and in socialize and stuff too but it was fucking loud in there and the bass was crazy <laughs> it would just like rip through your bones and uh god damn that shit was fresh and uh i remember seeing dj loxy there a bunch because i went i went quite a few times um you know, it would get really crowded. I, w- I wouldn't really stay for too long, maybe just a few hours, um, just because it would get so fucking hot in there. I remember it would, like, the, the ceiling would sweat. Like, you'd be getting water dripped on you from the ceiling of the club because it would just get so fucking hot and muggy in there with all the, the human bodies. Um, I remember seeing Fabio and Groove Rider there. They were really big uh, drum and bass uh, duo at the time. They had a club night that I went to a few nights to. And they did more like kind of uh, mellow, uh, kind of, I don't know. It was just not so aggressive drum and bass that uh, Metalheads was known for. Metalheads was really known for like the, the hardest shit that was out. And it really was. Um, I really dug it. Uh, there was these girls named chemistry and storm that would play sometimes too and it was all led by this dude goldie who i knew from uh the graffiti scene and uh he was there a lot if not every night sometimes not the whole time he would just kind of drop in and see what was going on and hear the new tracks and whatnot because uh, people were kind of all up in his shit and it was a tiny little place um but the the fucking sound system was absolutely amazing um Around that time, too, I think I met Sir, S-E-R. I'd seen him up all over London, north and south London. Uh, Mostly south London, though, for sure, because I I lived in south London. And uh, something funny, they would say SAF, like S-A-F, SAF London. And uh, the north would say north. So it was like N-O-R-F, north, or or just north. It's hard to uh, replicate, but I remember South London. And uh, they all talk shit about the North Londoners, and the North Londoners talk shit about the South Londoners. <laughs> I guess just like any city in, in the world. Uh, but yeah, Sir, I thought, was kind of the king of South London in particular. And uh, you can still find him. I think he goes by Graffiti Kings on uh instagram he's doing all kinds of like nft stuff these days but he's he's a badass and it doesn't surprise me that he's in the nft world these days because he's always been like a a dude that was had an angle uh i remember when i first met him he explained how uh he didn't have a job but he made money from like these multiple different outlets where he was on the dole which is like um 
uh, what's that like here? Uh, uh, what do they call that? When you just get a check in the mail every month, uh, kind of social security, but like a general assistance, maybe a GA check, something like that. Uh, so it's like basically you're unemployable, let's say, or you're something's up, you know, and you can't uh, earn a living. So you get this money from the from the government so that you can pay your rent and have food and uh, get like uh, food stamps and stuff. But he was also doing like uh, and he could work. He, I should say he he was very, very smart and driven and he could work, but he was more interested in trying to get over on the government. And so he also was doing these uh, mural uh things for uh the public school system i believe in there in southern london and uh he was getting paid for that too as well he was getting a budget uh for the paint for the murals that he was painting with the kids at the schoolyards and uh he would way over inflate the uh, estimates on how much paint he would need how much spray paint and then all the extra paint that he uh would acquire would end up in this room in his apartment uh, that was like literally stacked from floor to ceiling with boxes of different colors of spray paint. And then he would sell all of that at a kind of a discounted price um, at volume to uh, graffiti writers. Uh, if you were lucky, you know, that was the fucking hookup if you knew sir, you know. And, uh, and he, cause he had everything. And, uh, he was just i thought he was so smooth he was like kind of a not not a tough guy but you know didn't take no shit and uh and had a, a, a definitely a street rep that everybody knew about you know he he definitely did a lot of damage like i say you know i don't say he was the king of south london for nothing i mean to call someone a king they got to really earn that shit and he really was up everywhere i i really don't think there was another writer that was up as much as him at that time and uh we ended up uh going to a paint store uh before we went on a mission we finally decided on a night to get together and go do some track sides in london uh and I remember he took me to a paint store and he explained to me what they would be using because they had a lot of different kinds of spray paint that they used there. It wasn't just like one brand like Krylon uh, or Rust-Oleum that we might have used in the States. They used a lot of automotive paint and paint for different kinds of things. And so he explained to me that uh, there's a lot of those like bare brick rock kind of uh, uh, walls along the the train tracks uh, that pretty much the only thing that you could put on them is silver paint because everything just soaks in because it's really really porous concrete uh, so but the silver will kind of really sit on the surface of the rock and stay really shiny that almost looks like chrome when it's first done and they actually call them chromes uh, in London and el and elsewhere when you do those like uh, it's that silver paint uh, usually with a black outline and then like a white uh, halo or uh, you know whatever the fuck you want to call that a force field people call that extra outer line a, a lot of different things uh, but he showed me that you know I think we got hammerite brand silver um, I forget, yeah and it was like these tall big cans um, and then there was like 
a paint that was used for painting under the underneath of a car with black so it, it went on super super thick it was meant to protect the metal from uh, rocks and stuff coming up from the road but if you used it on that like on, on a wall it uh it was so thick that it was hard to make it drip it would almost like build off the wall like in thickness before it would drip it was the weirdest shit it was so fucking thick but with that with that hammerite silver you could do something on that bare brick and concrete and it would just look so shiny and the black would sit on top so well and we used a radiator paint uh for a car radiator or for uh, radiators in your home like those uh hot water heaters those old radiator style you could uh you wanted to paint those occasionally but they had to be able to handle high heat because they were being painted onto a heater so you'd use that white paint on walls too and again it wouldn't really drip it would just build up it wouldn't and it wouldn't soak in the wall either it was amazing i, I was like super pumped to get the 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 lowdown on the the technology of how to uh you know best deal with those porous uh concrete walls we also got a bunch of uh colors too because we we wanted to go do a production like a nice color piece but again on a track site where people are normally doing like throw ups tags and those kind of chromes we wanted to do a full color production with a character and the whole fucking nine um i forget what station he decided um to do or you know the 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 spot um, somewhere in South London. I think it was more on the east side, if I remember right, but I could be terribly wrong. In any case, uh, we headed out. Uh, I remember we, I think we just climbed off the end of a uh, the train, uh, the platform itself, because there was nobody around, and I think the trains had stopped running, and there was nobody in the station anymore, and nobody watching the cameras. And so we just marched down, and we did a... I th think we did one or two silver uh, chromes along that line. I remember, too, he mentioned to me that we had to be extra careful and extra, like, heads up because the line that he chose for us to do this trackside on was part of a, a new international connecting line uh, that connected uh, England to France. It was a train from London straight to Paris, and they called it the Channel. It was a tunnel that went under the, the English Channel, and uh, I'm fucking pretty sure it's still there, <laughs> the Channel train. Uh, but at the time, in 98, it was brand new, and I think they hadn't even started using it just yet, or it might have been even just the week that uh, it was going live that we painted uh, the wall so uh, it was a little sketchier than normal so to speak but I felt confident and uh, so we crept down and eventually we got down to this like utility building that was part of the, the train system and had a nice big long brick wall that was perfect for a, a two-person production and uh, we got our, our shit out and we did a really nice CERN giant with a character in the middle uh, lots of colors came off so fucking good we were able to take our time i think we only had to duck a few times because we thought we saw people and shit but it was it was a pretty mellow night not a big deal uh we were able to get back to the car really easy um it, you know not a big deal uh but i 
didn't get photos. I don't think we wanted to shoot night photos because of the flash. That would kind of give us away, and we were still kind of concerned about the security on the tunnel line. So I came back the next day pretty early in the morning. Uh, I believe it was a weekend morning. It could have been a Sunday morning. Uh, and I just had my 35-millimeter uh, film camera on me and was just planning on doing it just like we did the night before. I just walked to the end of the, the platform, hop off, and just walk down the tracks and get my photos. Um, I, now I realize I was being pretty cocky by doing that in broad daylight. And there were probably lasers and things set up and cameras and whatnot. So I, uh, I'm just cruising down, walking towards the, the, the production wall. It's probably, you know, it's off in the distance a ways. And uh, I look behind me and I see three guys in uh, yellow vests the, and stuff like the, the, the train worker guys. And they're coming towards me and they're kind of waving at me. And I'm like, fuck. Well, I'm already way ahead of them. I'm almost to the wall. So I'm just going to go up there. I'm going to snap some pics. And by the time I'm done, they'll probably be at me and they'll just grab me and take me back to the station. I doubt I'll get arrested. You know, it's probably not a big deal. So as I'm uh, walking, you know, and I hear them behind me kind of yelling. And then in the distance in front of me, I see another group, but they look more like police. They're in like real police uniforms um, and they're running and they're running kind of straight towards me. And I still have to get the flicks in there in front of me. So I'm like, fuck it. So I start running top speed to the wall, really running top speed at the cops, too, so to speak. But they were off pretty far. They were coming from the other station. It was pretty far. So I run up. I snap off the flicks real quick. And, of course, you're hoping to God they fucking work, that the exposure's right and whatnot, because you're not going to get those film photos back for a while. And if you didn't get the flicks good, that's the only evidence you got that it happened. And that's a bummer, because this was a really nice production. I know there's photos of it floating around. I just asked Sir if he's got another good one. I'm hoping I can post it with this uh, podcast. But um, So I got the flicks. And the cops are fucking really close now. And they're really running. And it seems like they're fucking pissed. And I'm like, fuck. This is the channel line. I, I forgot. Like, damn, this is bad news. So I was like, fuck it. I'm not trying to get caught. Um, at this point, you know, I'm going to run. So I started trotting away from the cops. But again, it was the workers that were coming up from behind me. So they were right there too. So pretty soon into trotting away from the cops... I decide to dip left and climb a fence that wasn't very high, but that put me into somebody's backyard. Like along the train tracks was just everybody's backyards in the neighborhood there. So I just straight jumped into somebody's backyard and looked back, and they're very, very close at that point. And I'm like, fuck. So I took off running. I didn't see a way to get around the, the house so I just ran right in the back door. I shit you not. It's right out of a fucking movie. But I ran through the back door. I, if I remember correctly, there was a, a woman, middle-aged, um, that just said like, oh, 
as I ran through the house and there were two kids in the front room watching TV or something. And I was like, sorry, sorry. And I ran through their fucking house out their front door (laughs) and into the street. And there was all these kids that were playing soccer in the street. And they all looked at me like, what the fuck is going on? And I was like, where's the train station? Where's the train station? And they pointed and I fucking took off running that direction. And uh, didn't even look back. I don't know if the cops chased me through the house. I didn't look back. I just fucking took off. And as I was running, I took off my jacket. I think I might have ditched it just because they would have had a description of me as a person with a you know a black jacket on. And then I had like an orange t-shirt on under that. So it was like, ah, maybe that's not the guy I was thinking. Um, and luckily the kids, basically, I think that the train that I had... The train uh, station that I had jumped off of that we had used to go to access this wall that we painted was a Brit rail. So it was like a commuter train. And luckily, these kids had sent me to the nearest train station, which was a subway train, which was a totally different system. So, you know, I was hopeful. So I I got to the subway train and luckily one pulled up. And I just remember standing at that platform just like, man, if the fucking cops run down here on this platform... I'm fucked. This is it. I'm going to fucking jail. And uh, luckily, I didn't see any cops. And I got on the train and I sat down and my heart was racing. And I was like, fuck, fuck. I think I'm good. I think I'm good. And I got like to, a, to the next station and thought they might be at that station waiting to get on to look for me. There was nobody. We left that station. Again, it was a Sunday morning. It was really, really quiet. And uh, I just tried to keep my fucking cool. And luckily, I got I got out of there, and uh, everything was cool. And uh, I did get the photos. I don't know where the fuck they are now, uh, but I think I have a scan of it somewhere. And uh, that was a fucking epic, epic night. Um, but fuck, man, I'm I'm barely into what month is this? Oh shit, yeah, I'm barely into April of that year. So I'm gonna have to continue this at another time. Uh, I'll come back with part two ASAP. All right. Uh, Thanks for listening. This has been fun.